The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I had good intentions of, of covering more verses, but once I started to kind of dig in, it became obvious to me that I wasn't going to make that much ground. So we're going to look at verses 29 to 34 tonight, and um, I hope that you will immediately realize how weird this passage is. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So Paul has been giving us the arguments that Christians one day will be raised from the dead. And that argument, of course, is directly connected to the argument that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are so inextricably bound together that you cannot affirm one and deny the other, as the Corinthians were doing. And so what Paul does is is he lays out these arguments, but when he gets to verses 29 to 34, he kind of shifts, in a sense, to arguments that are now very practical in nature, all right? Uh, his, His previous arguments have been, in a sense, more theological. Now he's going to point out that there are certain Christian behaviors and practices that in fact make no sense apart from a Christian being raised physically from the dead. And then what Paul's going to do is after making these practical arguments or pragmatic arguments, he's going to give a very strong warning, a rebuke, and an exhortation. And so if I were to summarize, you can summarize the passage easily enough. It simply just goes something like this. If God does not raise the dead... It's absurd to be baptized for the dead. If God does not raise the dead, it's absurd for Paul to live in constant danger for the sake of the gospel. And then since God does raise the dead, the Corinthians need to stop being deceived, wake up, be sober-minded, and stop sinning. Tom Schreiner actually puts it like this. I love it. He says, snap out of it and wake up. All right? So that brings us to verse 29. How many have ever noticed verse 29 in your Bible? (laughs) All right, yeah, a few of you. Um, Well, we we get to, uh, in a sense, sort of a peculiar argument because the fact is, is we don't know what Paul's talking about, okay? Um, that, That is, let me just give you the final conclusion right up front. Nobody is sure what Paul is talking about. So when he says uh, in verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Um, 
you could probably translate the idea something like this. uh, What good will it do them being baptized for the dead, right? Uh, That's the idea of, um, of what will they do. That is, what good does it do them? Now, here's the, here's the stunning thing. There are, there are a massive amount of journal articles that simply trace the number of arguments for this passage. In other words, not articles about the argument for the passage, but articles listing all of the arguments for the passage, all the different views, right? And so, to date, there are over 40 different proposals as to what Paul means by baptism for the dead, all right? And so, you look at it, you look at the passage, you look at verse 29, Paul says it twice, and it just looks like this. Um, You had people in Corinth that were being baptized vicariously on behalf of dead people. That's what the text seems to say. And so there are, um, of course, a multitude of speculations about possible circumstances that would give rise to baptism for the dead, like um, believers were were being baptized simply for um, dead family members or just dead people in general. Um, being baptized on their behalf, or maybe something even a little more specific of, let's say, a believing family member uh, professes faith, dies before they're baptized, and so then the person's baptized on their behalf. And in fact, the, the funny thing is about the text is that even, even the Greek text is so incredibly straightforward that if it were not for the difficulty of what baptism for the dead means, nobody would ever even debate the text, right? So here's an interesting historical observation, and that is there's absolutely zero evidence of baptism for the dead in the church. Never existed before, didn't exist in the apostolic period, didn't exist in the post-apostolic period. Nobody talks about it. And there's no, there, it's not like you have a, a few dozen references to, uh, oh yeah, and we baptized 29 people for the dead today, right? The interesting thing is, is it not only doesn't exist within Christianity, it doesn't even exist within paganism. There are no pagan examples. There's no pagan evidence of baptism for the dead. The only examples we have of baptism for the dead are heretical groups that have abused this text. That's the only evidence we have of baptism for the dead. So, for instance, around the 3rd and 4th centuries, there were Gnostic groups that practiced baptism for the dead Guess on the basis of what text? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And then, of course, you know that uh, the Mormon church actually practices proxy baptisms for the dead. And, of course, where do they get that idea? Well, lo and behold, right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. So, 
commentator Gordon Fee, he says, um, <clears throat> he says, this is a genuinely idiosyncratic historical phenomenon. And it, it, it stands as so strange to us, right? So there are a few um, things that make it a problem, right? So when you hear of baptism for the dead, does that strike you as, as, as maybe something that was misguided? <laughs> Why in the world would you be baptized for a dead person, right? So the obvious problem, even just on the face of it, would be sort of, um, a, let's say, a view of baptism that was, let's say, like a magical view that was... Um, so, you know, in, uh, in, in, in the Catholic tradition, you have the idea of the sacraments, and so then what's behind the sacraments is this idea of by virtue of the thing performed, ex opere operato, by virtue of the thing done, right? So, you can do things vicariously within a sacramental system, all right? So, this would, this would actually imply sort of a uh, a, a magical view of baptism that is sacramentalism of the worst kind, right? Somebody actually being uh, baptized with saving efficacy on somebody else's behalf, right? I mean, in a sense, don't you wish that's, that, that salvation were that easy, right? Just sprinkle water on somebody for somebody that's already dead and then have the assurance that they're Okay, so obviously, um, Paul does not say anything negative about it, right? That's part of the problem, is some people, and, and we'll talk about this in a sec, but um, some people just say, well, it was wrong, but Paul just doesn't say anything about it uh, in terms of some anything negative. Well, let me just ask you, knowing Knowing the Apostle Paul like you do from his New Testament writings, can you imagine a, a view or a practice that was so contrary to salvation by grace through faith that when he mentions it or addresses it, he doesn't say anything negative about it? It just seems absolutely implausible to me that if they were actually doing this, believing that there was some sort of sacramental magic or uh, saving uh, efficiency in doing this, that Paul would have most definitely said something about it. So uh, I'm not going to go over all 40 views. Uh, are you all right? Is that okay? Um, <clears throat> but I am, I am going to tell you what I think are the three most plausible views, all right? And by the way, uh, 40, it, it means that you have views within views that have nuances of this emphasis or that emphasis, right? So the first is actually just that it, it looks, it is just what it looks like it is, and that is vicarious baptism that was somehow uniquely practiced among the Corinthians, and in this case, Paul actually just doesn't commend it or condemn it, but he just simply is using it as an example, showing how their own weird practice actually refutes their denial that the dead are raised, right? So here the Corinthians are, and they're doing this wacky thing, and Paul says, you know what? If the dead aren't raised, why do you do that wacky thing, right? 
So uh, Don Carson actually has a pretty good analogy. He says, imagine that you're a Protestant talking to a Catholic person, and maybe the Catholic person is denying um, uh, life after death. And the, so you say to the Catholic person, if, if, if the dead don't live after they die, why do you pray for the dead? Right? Something like that. So it's not commending prayer for the dead, but kind of using, let's say, a misguided practice that undermines their whole argument, all right? So I'll just say that's possible. Um, There's another effort that I think is, uh, let's just say, a valiant effort, and that is that this is just a weird phrase for water baptism, okay? Baptism for the dead. Now, there's, there's something to be said because uh, you could say, uh, in, in the Greek text, it would be baptism for the dead ones. Okay? And sometimes the dead ones is just the idea of corpses. All right. So taking it this way, there's a couple of different uh, views, and that is that the dead is actually just sort of a reference to the spiritual state before People were baptized, right? So Paul's just saying, in a sense, uh, why do you practice baptism on behalf of those uh, who are spiritually dead? That is, those who were dead, now they're converted. Um, I like the idea. The problem is, is that the text doesn't actually seem to indicate that. Um, another idea within this larger view is um, it's, it's in view of the believer's future corpse, so, in other words, uh, your future death. Why are you baptized in light of the fact that one of these days you're going to die? Well, here's, here's one of the problems is Paul talks about the dead a lot. And he talks about the dead a lot in 1 Corinthians 15. And do you know what he means every other time when he talks about the dead? People who have died. Surprise? So when Paul uses the term the dead, he talks about people who have died. So to try to make it some sort of um, spiritual concept that is connected to conversion seems to me to be a a big stretch, all right? Now, this next view that I'm going to tell you may be a big stretch too. All right, but at least it makes better sense to me than the other. <clears throat> and that is that the whole view comes down to what does Paul mean for the dead? Okay? Because there's a fundamental assumption in most of the views that for the dead means something like this on behalf of the dead, right? Vicariously on behalf of the dead. And so a number of commentators point out that, that the prepositional phrase does not necessarily have to mean in the place of or as, as a substitute or vicariously for the dead. It could be translated something like this, on account of the dead. Okay. Now, you have to track with me on this because it gets... It, do you think the Corinthians understood what Paul was talking about? Yeah, a pretty good idea that they, they probably... I, I doubt the Corinthians read the letter and said, what in the Sam Hill is he talking about? 
Baptism for the dead, that's weird. I, I think they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. So if the first century writer, Paul, is speaking to the first century audience, and here we are 2,000 years removed, all right, and Paul has a, a relationship with this church. He was in Corinth for 18 months. Um, is it possible that he could be using language that is that, that eludes us, but actually they understood exactly what he was talking about? Okay. Well, I think that that's absolutely the case. And one of the problems is, is that sometimes if um, it's, it's like you come late in the conversation, right? You don't, you don't necessarily know uh, the, the, the freight behind certain words, all right? And so I think that that ends up being the case. So all that to be, all that to say, if, if Paul says, why are you baptized? Or why are you baptizing uh, on account of the dead, all right, the idea could be something like this. And this is just, I'm going to tell you all in a second that it really doesn't matter because nobody knows for sure. So, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. So some commentators actually speculate that on account of the dead, the idea goes like this. People have heard about uh, the glorious future that Christians have. And uh, in fact, some of the things Paul outlines in this very chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and they were baptized because they believed in Christ and wanted to join in the future share of those who have died in Christ, okay? So we don't sing it on the Lord's Day, but uh, when the saints go marching in, right? What's that little line? I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And so this view, basically, you could, you could actually paraphrase it as one uh, pair of commentators do. Um, now, if there is no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them? And so to me, I think that that's, that's plausible. But here's the thing. Is it something like this you can't know with certainty? Okay. You just can't. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, certainty eludes us. Right? Gordon Fee, finally, we must admit, we simply don't know. Okay. You do understand there's stuff in the Bible like that where you have to just say, uncle. I, I don't know for sure, right? And um, by the way, there's no, there's no shame in actually just saying I don't know for sure, right? In fact, that may be the most humble thing to say uh, instead of being dogmatic. But here's, here's the, the, the point, is that Paul's argument in and of itself is clear, You're doing something, baptism for the dead on account of the dead, you're doing something that in a sense betrays your very denial that the dead are raised. That's the point, all right? Now, let's get to something that's more clear. Verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? 
So if the dead aren't raised, that's the the premise of each one of these arguments. If the dead aren't raised, why are we in danger every hour? So here's here's the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. It was one of huge risk-taking and suffering. That was Paul's life. Paul actually took huge risks all the time. By the way, all of his risks were taken in the full confidence in a sovereign God who loved him and would look out for him. And uh, to live was Christ and to die was gain for Paul. And so Paul saw his life as of no account and he saw his life as something that was to be lived for the glory of God and, and that meant taking big risks, that meant doing dangerous things, that meant actually embracing suffering as a part of his ministry. Uh, for Paul, suffering was part and parcel of the propagation of the gospel. And so he would say to the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians uh, 11, he says, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. That's a lot of danger, right? I forget what the little robot was in Lost in Space, but, you know, if Paul would have had one of those, it would have been constantly, you know, danger, Apostle Paul, danger, right? And so here's Paul, and, and basically his point is this. This is, this is my calling, and this is the life that I live, and if there's no resurrection, and there's no future reward in the life to come, why in the world am I going through all of this? Why in the world would I put myself at risk and, and, and embrace suffering? When it came to suffering for the gospel, Paul did not seek to avoid it. With a faith and a determination, he went headlong right into it over and over and over again. And he says, if the dead aren't raised, what in the world am I doing? And notice, in verse 31, he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which you have, in in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily, right? So notice this language, I affirm by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, Paul actually is, is um, it's, it's almost an oath that he's making here. Uh, and, and the idea goes something like this. You're the very fruit of my ministry. You are, to use language he uses elsewhere, you're the seal of my apostleship. I boast in Christ Jesus what he has done in me for you and through you. In fact, Christ has been at work in me, the least of all the apostles. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I've worked harder than all of them. 
And I did it for your sake, but it was Christ in me. And so there is a sense where Paul could, could say, I, I affirm that I boast in what God has done in you through me. And then he turns around and he says, and I, I die daily. By the way, this wasn't Paul uh, with, with some sort of higher life mantra about the crucified life. When Paul says, I die daily, what Paul's talking about, he's not talking about um, uh, per se self-denial. He's not talking about uh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. What Paul's talking about here is, is in a sense an elaboration of what he said in verse 30, and that is, I face death every single day. I face death and I face death gladly because I see what God does in me in the lives of others like you and I realize that facing death every day is absolutely worth it. Now, you know, the Corinthians weren't an easy bunch. I mean, the Corinthians make you guys look like you're nearly glorified and in heaven, all right? I mean, the Corinthians were a tough bunch. But Paul could look at them and just say, you know, the life that I live, the sacrifices that I make, the things that I'm willing to do in order to get the gospel to people like you, it's absolutely worth it. It's interesting to me when you look at, let's say, the history of missions and, and you see people who, in the words of Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. You see people like um, Adoniram Judson and William Carey and Lottie Moon, and you see people like John G. Payton, and you see people like Jim Elliott who, who made the ultimate sacrifice to take the gospel to people. And you know what? At the end of the day, it was, it was like it was totally worth it. When Jim Elliott... Was, was, was martyred on a sandbar in Central America, there was, there was no sense of, rats, I, I blew it. I could have been an accountant. It was, this is worth it. Christ is worth it. The age to come makes it worth it. And so Paul just simply says, I die daily. Death is, when I look at my to-do list every day, right at the bottom it says, and you might die today. And Paul was fine with that. And his point is, is if there's no resurrection, why live a life like that? He goes on in, in, in verse 32, and he says, um, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now, there's this little phrase. You might notice it's, it's different. So, uh, in New American Standard, if from human motives, all right, uh, ESV does, does it differently, don't they? Humanly speaking, okay. um, NIV 
mere human reasons. Um, Christian Standard Bible, with only human hope. There, there's a reason why there's so much variety in the translations, and it's simply this, because Paul just, there's just three simple words in the Greek text, if according to man. Right? So, so translators are trying to wrestle with, what does Paul mean, if according to man? Is he, is he just saying, like, from a human perspective, or is he saying just within, if this was just a matter of just mere human hope? Um, my, my sense is... Um, Paul's saying, if I, if I did this just simply on a human level, right? There are people that are incredibly courageous, very bold, and do extraordinary things. Okay? I mean, I, I don't know about you. Maybe it was just the way that I was raised, but I think of... I think of uh, William Barrett Travis, and I think of uh, Sam Bowie, and I think of David Crockett, and I think of 186 men who hold off 5,000 of Santa Ana's men for 13 days, and I see they have the opportunity to leave, and they don't. Like, you know, that kind of courage moves your heart. Do you think of those brave 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old men who landed at Omaha Beach and paved the way with their blood and guts to overthrow evil? There There are incredibly moving, courageous acts that human beings do. But in a sense, it's, it's just at a human level. Is it worth it to overthrow tyranny and evil and all of that? And the answer is, of course. But Paul says, if, if just from a human level, I fought beasts at Ephesus... What's the profit? Some people take Paul quite literally here that he got thrown into the Colosseum with wild beasts, and I I want to dismiss that almost immediately because, as far as I know, um, the survival rate of that process was not very high. The apostle actually lets us know, in a sense, what was going on. And uh, wild beasts is a reference, I think, almost certainly to uh, vicious opponents who opposed Paul at every turn. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16 and verse 9, he says, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. At the end of Paul's life, when he talks about actually standing, um, as it were, before the emperor, he says, notice how he puts it, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, to be sure, um, Paul faced opposition wherever he went, but do you you actually understand um, what an awful 
experience it would be that everywhere you went, you had the kind of opposition that was always intent on your physical harm. Paul is not talking about, uh, I can't believe it, I was preaching and they picketed. It's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about people that had such a, a, a visceral, vehement, violent reaction that his opponents actually thirsted for his blood. And it didn't matter whether it was the Jewish people uh, being stirred up in a particular synagogue or whether it ends up at the end of his life being the Roman authorities who imprison him and end up executing him. Uh, The fact is, is that the apostle absolutely knew the, the tremendous burden and affliction of having opponents. It could be that the opponents in Ephesus is exactly what Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, where he talks about being burdened um, excessively beyond his ability to bear, and then uh, says we had the sentence of death within ourselves. In other words, everywhere we went... Our life was in danger from opponents of the gospel. It could be that that one of these opponents is the very thorn in the flesh that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. Now, really, very few of us here have ever been uh, persecuted for the gospel in those kinds of terms. But I will tell you that having opposition and having people that, that, that really just have nothing but your demise as their goal is a terrible thing. And so Paul says, listen, if, if I just wrestle with the beasts in Ephesus, my vicious, violent opponents, and there's no resurrection, what's the profit for me? Why engage, in, why engage in this kind of conflict and this kind of battle? And I mean, let's just face it. It, is just, it would be just easier just to simply lay down my arms and go and do fun stuff. What profit is there in, in the battle if there's no resurrection? So Gordon Fee makes this comment. He says, thus, without the resurrection, his earthly struggle is without meaning. He's gained nothing. Not only now, but in the life to come. And not only for himself, but for all those who have come to Christ as a result of that struggle. The reason Paul could actually struggle and sacrifice and stay in the fight like he did was because he believed that there was a future in it. Verse 32b, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. By the way, this is uh, 
a citation from Isaiah 22.13, and the idea is, is um, in, in view of the impending Assyrian invasion, uh, it looks like we're going to die, and since we're going to die, what should we do? Well, let's just eat and drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Right? You have to feel the weight of this. Paul's, Paul's uh, argument here is really simple. If there's no resurrection, then stop the suffering, stop the sacrifice. If there's no future reward, instead of suffering and making a sacrifice, let's just party. If there's nothing to the Christian faith that goes beyond this present life, let's just eke out whatever worldly pleasure we can get right now because tomorrow you're going to die. Yeah, every once in a while you'll hear, and I I, I quoted something like this a a number of weeks or months ago. Um, You know, some some monk or somebody is being interviewed and and they're asked, uh, I think Don Carson uh, used this as an illustration one time, uh, this monk's being interviewed and and uh, the person interviewer says, "Well, what if it's what if it's all not true?" And and the monk says something like, uh, "Well, that really doesn't ultimately matter because I've lived a beautiful life of of sacrifice." And uh, you know, and 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 I think Paul would actually look at somebody like that and say, "You're an idiot." There there actually is nothing that is innately beautiful about suffering and sacrifice if there is no resurrection from the dead. Do do, do you feel the weight of Paul actually saying, if there's no resurrection, just party and die? You think Paul was convinced of the resurrection? You better believe he was convinced of the resurrection. He'd He'd seen the risen Christ. He knew this wasn't a game. He knew that there was a future, that there was a hope, and that the the life that he lived, he could live on the brink of death every single day because ultimately what mattered was not today. So, if you're not a Christian, you have this, this, this fork in the road in front of you. If the resurrection is true, there's only one way to go. If it's not, drink as much beer as you can. Party as hard as you possibly can. And then drop dead. But if you're wrong, you're wrong forever. And so here's Paul... He's not pulling any punches. If there's no resurrection, get as much pleasure as you can before you take your dirt nap. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. By the way, Paul's moving away now from argument to now uh, rebuke. All right? This, um, so... (laughs) Paul's gone from the the, the fatherly um, reasoning now to the... uh, uh, this is spanking time, okay? This is spanking time. He says, 
do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Okay? Um, by the way, sometimes when you're reading this, uh, by the way, you, you know the verse, right? Bad company corrupts good morals, right? How many of you parents use it for your kids? Okay? Don't hang out with that kid, Ricky. <laughs> by the way, if you've got a neighborhood, a neighborhood kid named Ricky, just out of principle, don't let your kids play with that kid. All right? I, <laughs> I've never met a Ricky that was upright. Anyway, bad company corrupts good morals, right? And, and you're reading the argument, and you're like, how does that fit in? Right? Well, first, notice the, the imperative, the command. Don't be deceived. Now, you know Paul's already said to the Corinthians, let no man deceive himself. Right? He would also say to the Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap, right? Paul also could say to the Ephesians, do not be deceived with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So here's, here's the point. This is why Paul says, don't be deceived. It's because we have the propensity to be deceived. We have the propensity to deceive ourselves. Just out of curiosity, we'll take an official poll right now. How many of you actually have ever, at some point in your life, wanted to believe something so bad that you deceived yourself into believing it, all the while knowing that it wasn't true? Okay. Ah, good. Six honest souls. There we go. This this is self-deceit, right? Self-deceit. Having a heart that is wicked above all else, who can know it? and then having that heart that is deceitful above all else. So having a sinful heart and the propensity to self-deceive, it's a deadly, terrible combination, right? So we, we, we deceive ourselves, we allow ourselves to be deceived pretty easily. Okay. Ever allow yourself to be deceived, let's say, in marriage? Some of you are like, oh, what's he talking about? <laughs> oh, well, let me, let me, you know, expand on it a little bit. Uh, you're like so bent on making sure that your narrative is the truth that you refuse to listen to the other person. You know what we call that? Self-deceit. How many people, uh, and this is, this is Paul's point actually in the Galatians and Ephesians passage, how many people justify their own sinful behavior and do it by deceiving themselves into thinking, okay, um, you know what, God loves me. Uh, I know that maybe what I'm doing he doesn't necessarily approve of, but I'm okay. How many people have deceived themselves into choosing a path of unrighteous conduct and then saying, well, it's okay. 
I'm just a carnal Christian. You ever seen it happen? Or, for those of you who, who aren't married, and you have the the heart Twitter patience of being in love, and you have that unbelieving guy or that unbelieving girl, and you say really, utterly stupid things like, well, if God didn't want me to love this person, he wouldn't have brought him into my life. You know what we call that? Besides lots of things that we probably shouldn't say right now, we call it self-deceit. Okay. Paul says, don't be deceived. And then he quotes a very common saying in the first century. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why do you have to be warned not to be deceived before you're told bad company corrupts good morals? Think about the connection. Right? What, what, what we do is we, we end up associating with people that we, we know are bad for us, and yet we deceive ourselves into thinking that, uh, you know, well, you know, I mean, who's going to tell them about the Lord if unless it's me? Or, uh, you know, you, you come up with all kinds of excuses as to why it's okay to be with these people that you know actually are contrary to your spiritual health. By the way, it's absolutely right and good for parents to use this as a general principle for their children, but Paul has something very specific in mind, doesn't he? The Proverbs actually warn us stuff like this, right? He who walks with the wise men will be wise, right? You hang out with wise people, their wisdom does what? It rubs off on you. But the companion of fools will suffer harm, all right? And so, Tom Schreiner actually brings this into focus for us. He says, some doubts are not generated by legitimate intellectual questions. They stem from associating with people who live in a way that is not pleasing to God. In other words, you have to understand that that Paul is employing this statement, bad company corrupts good morals, to, uh, to reinforce in us the reality that there can be a corrosive influence that people have that... When, when you, by the way, this is not to say don't become friends with unbelievers or anything like that. That's, that's not what this is saying. But what it is saying is bad company has a corrosive influence on what you believe and how you behave. I love my Western Civ professor. He is just so brilliant. Um, he, in fact, he invited me to his office for coffee so he could tell me how everything that I learned from you, mom and dad, is a bunch of hooey. Bad company 
as a corrosive influence that erodes what we believe and how we behave. Do you think it is it is just coincidence that so many Christian young people raised in the church abandon their faith in college? Do you know why that's true? It's not because they've become intellectually enlightened and understand that mom and dad just fed them a bunch of fables. It is because they are constantly around unbelieving people who are constantly mocking and undermining their faith. And they're around all kinds of people who are living a life that is contrary to the things that they've been brought up to believe. And therefore, all of the sudden, all of the immorality Morality, all of the unethical behavior, all of the sexual aberration, all of it becomes normalized. Do you understand that that's what's happening to us as a culture wholesale right now is that perversion is being normalized? Bad company corrupts good morals. And so for Paul... Bad doctrine, in this case, denying the resurrection, has moral and ethical implications. So young people, listen carefully. If God puts people in your path for you to evangelize and you to witness to, you do it. but you do it carefully. Exposure to error over and over and over again can have a devastating effect on your faith. There's an old preacher, J.W. Alexander. His father was the famous Archibald Alexander who started Princeton Seminary and J.W. Alexander in his book Thoughts on Preaching is actually talking, uh, has a section where he's talking about preaching on error and preaching on uh, uh, heresy and so forth. And he makes this, this observation. He says that the pastor, the preacher, needs to be careful at how much error he exposes himself to because error always has a deleterious effect upon the soul. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so Paul is simply telling the Corinthians, these people that you entertain and have these, you know, enlightening conversations with, they're undermining your Christian life. Now, I know that, you know, today, I mean... You know, I understand that 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 sounds uh, narrow. It sounds uh, intolerant. Um, I mean, after all, um, you know, um, uh, the only heresy today is that there's the idea of heresy. But I want to tell you 
but continually exposing yourself to bad teaching and to error will erode the life of God in your soul. Paul then gets down to verse 34, last verse. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So become sober-minded as you ought. What's Paul saying is, is wake up. Sober up. Come to your senses. You, you're, you're listening to these people that say there's no future resurrection. And it's like you, you're, you're in this, um, this stupor. Snap out of it. And there's, notice that there's an oughtness, there's a correctness, an uprightness that Paul could actually fully expect from, from the Corinthians. Be sober-minded as you ought to be. There was a legitimate expectation that they actually should be awake and, and, um, and sober-minded in these things. Paul wasn't asking too much of them. He was simply telling them what was simply expected from them. Most evangelical churches in America would not have liked Paul as their pastor. Seriously. Then Paul says this, and stop sinning. Well, all right, let's just close there because that's the easy part. Stop sinning. Um, What do you think Paul means by stop sinning here? I mean, by the way, stop sinning is a general injunction uh, actually is, is true, right? Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But, you know, stop sinning, you know, okay? Yeah, yeah, repent for sure, for sure. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, what, what's, what's in view in the context here, right, is actually toying with questioning the future resurrection of Christians that is a pillar truth. And Paul says, in the words of my favorite theologian, Bob Newhart, stop it! Okay? By the way, if you've never seen that video, you should watch it tonight and you should take heed. Just stop it. Stop sinning. Oh, so you know what the implication is. Paul is saying, by you giving, um, by you entertaining these ideas of, of doctrinal impurity, you're sinning. Stop it. You know, again, we, we, we live in a, in a culture where people, you know, like, so I don't really know, uh, you know, if Jesus was really raised from the dead or I don't, uh, you know, and you start having these big questions about, and, and we're so, we, we just coddle people in, in their toying with unbelief. And Paul just says, stop sinning. Just knock it off. And then he says this, and this is, this is probably the, the most Serious indictment that he's made so far. For some have no knowledge of God. Who's he talking about there? 
Well, he's talking about the Corinthians who are denying that there's a, a future resurrection for believers. Now, you have to understand, and Gordon Fee is absolutely right. He says this is the ultimate put-down for those responsible for taking the church down this present disastrous course. This is a put-down. Paul says, stop sinning. And the reason you need to stop is because there are some among you that have no knowledge of God. You know what he's saying? You've got people in your assembly that are floating these ideas and they don't know God. In a sense, what Paul does here is he he takes the gloves off and just simply says, "Here's, here's the problem. Some among you don't know God. The Corinthians probably said, what? Because remember how proud they were of of how spiritual they were and how much knowledge they had and how much wisdom they had, right? I mean, they they were at a totally different level. And Paul says, you know what? Some of them don't even know God. You know, one of the hardest things for the church and I'm talking about the professing Bible-believing church in America, one of the hardest things for us to accept is the fact that we have people all around us who sit around us and listen to the same sermons that we listen to and sing the same songs that we sing, and they don't know God. Sobering thought. Right? To think that there are actually people that go to church every Sunday, put money in the plate, um, have their own little weird ideas, but and the indictment is you don't even know God. Sobering. And Paul says that's the problem. And that's why you need to stop sinning by listening to these people. And then Paul says this. Paul didn't really have any sort of um, like social sensitivity. He says, I speak this to your shame. (laughs) Good grief, Paul. Don't you know that shame is just terrible and you don't say stuff to shame people. And Paul says, well, you know what? I already told him in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that I was writing to them so I wouldn't have to shame them. But now for the second time, I've had to tell them, I say this to your shame. And do you know what Paul means when he says, I say this to your shame? He's saying this, you should know better you should know better and you should you should be you should be embarrassed because you should know better so for paul he was more than willing to say what needed to be said why because the future matters. 
the resurrection matters. The very idea of eternal life, a life to come, a resurrection that will mark the, 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 the coming age, these are not just things that, that Christians can, can throw up for debate and, and uh, put their little memes on Facebook and argue about it and, and have lively discussion to deny what is clear and to tamper with a pillar of the faith is to put oneself in an incredibly dangerous position. And Paul is abundantly clear. You know, over the, over the last 10 years or so, I've probably had three or four pastors who have called me who have said, you know what, I have these, these young men in my church who are, um, they, they're, they're locking on to preterism. Preterism is the idea that everything, including the second coming, was fulfilled in A.D. 70. And these young men are argumentative and they are divisive and they hold this idea and they are denying, they're denying a future resurrection and they are denying the new creation. Just ideas up for debate? No. You don't tamper with the pillars of the faith. There are things that Christians can have legitimate debate and discussion about. For instance, what does 1 Corinthians 15.29 really mean? But there are other things that are not up for grabs. And for Paul, it was really simple. And that was my, my confidence of the future and a resurrection is what fuels my service. It's what fuels my sacrifice and even my willingness to die and to deny The future, like that, is to go down a path that demonstrates not only bad morals, but an ignorance of God. And Paul simply calls for a cessation of all such nonsense. There's a great pastoral lesson in these few verses, isn't there? Sometimes you don't just coddle people. You just tell them the truth. You tell it like it is. Doesn't mean you have to be mean. Doesn't mean you have to be vicious. But sometimes coddling people does nothing but reinforce them in their own errors. Sometimes what they simply need to be told is, stop deceiving yourself. Stop sinning. You better be sure that you really know God. On judgment day, 
We're going to thank the Lord Jesus, right, for all that he's done for us. But you know know who else we're going to thank on that day? The people who loved us enough to tell us the truth. Be that kind of person. And be the kind of person that's willing to receive that. Because that's what we all need. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, certainly a, a sobering passage and a difficult passage. And, and Father, there's, there's a rebuke in it. And we pray that you would help us to uh, receive what we need to receive for the good of our own souls. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't just put up um, our defenses so that our feelings won't get hurt. But Father, we pray that you would just give us open hearts and open minds to hear what we need to hear tonight. And uh, Lord, we know that sometimes your word is is like that hammer, and uh, we just pray that you would accomplish your purposes tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.